Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Esteban Cabeza de Baca, the momentary in Bentonville, Arkansas, is presenting Esteban Cabeza de Baca, Let Earth Breathe. It's up through September 25th. Across the exhibition, Cabeza de Baca deconstructs the colonial European-American landscape tradition by reconsidering painting and sculpture as a collaboration with nature. The show is curated by Caitlin Garcia Maestas with Taylor Jasper. Cabeza de Baca's work is also included in Plain Air at the Museum of Contemporary Art Tucson. That exhibition was curated by Aurora Tang and will be on view through February 5th, 2023. Cabeza de Baca's work has been shown recently in group shows at the Southeastern Center for Contemporary Art, SICA, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and at the Drawing Center in New York City. On the second segment, Jess T. Dugan. Before we get to Esteban Cabeza de Baca, I gotta confess, I was a little bit defeated by a new Zoom algorithm in this conversation. Fortunately, I don't do a lot of talking in this show. You'll mostly hear from the artist, so I think you'll barely notice. Esteban Cabeza de Baca, after the break. The Summer Immersive Series is back at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Experience Leandro Ehrlich, Seeing is Not Believing, an exhibition that comes to life. Unlock your imagination and cast your reflection onto the multi-story building or become the patient in the psychiatrist's office. Add to your summer bucket list and get tickets at mfah.org slash Leandro Ehrlich. A Movement in Every Direction, Legacies of the Great Migration, is now on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art. This exhibition explores the profound impact of the Great Migration on the social and cultural life of the United States from historical and personal perspectives. Co-organized with the Baltimore Museum of Art, the exhibition features newly commissioned works by 12 acclaimed Black artists working across a variety of media. Through the artists' distinct and dynamic installations, a movement in every direction reveals a new spectrum of contexts that shaped the Great Migration and explores the ways in which it continues to reverberate today in both intimate and communal experiences. The exhibition is on view at the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson through September 11, 2022. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. On view at the Getty Center through October 28th, the fascinating new exhibition Working Together, the Photographers of the Kamoingi Workshop, depicts black life during the 1960s and 1970s through an artistic lens. The photographs of the Kamoingi Workshop capture unique portraits of music legends like Miles Davis, Grace Jones, and Mahalia Jackson, moments in the civil rights movement, and artful abstractions often printed in dark tones that evoke the unsettling era in which they were made. Join Getty for the first major retrospective presenting the work of a collaborative chapter of American photography. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. And we're back. Esteban Cabeza de Baca, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much for welcoming me, Tyler. Your works mine the American landscape tradition in address of the present, which of course is how and why the American landscape tradition developed in painting as Emerson's ideas became known in the 1840s. And you give it lots of new addresses, new interrogations that we'll get to as we go along here. But, you know, landscape is kind of a, 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 a long-standing traditional interest. So what, what were the relationships between you and the land that brought you to using land and landscape as an address within your work? I feel like 
for me, it's not so much about like reprising, but more deconstructing the history of American landscape painting and art history as much as possible to get a foothold for people like me of Chicano and Native American background to find a place for themselves in a predominantly white trajectory and pedagogy that I experienced growing up in art institutions and going to art museums. I think part of my reason for working also is about truth in, in art. Of course, painting can carry metaphors and ideologies and whatnot, but I'm also really interested in going out into nature with preconceived notions of what I'm going to work with and letting nature readjust me and tell me what it kind of wants and possesses me and let, let some of like those spirits from my ancestry in the Southwest kind of subtly or subconsciously peripherally guide me into spaces in a way where, you know, I think truth is really important right now also where people have their own views of, of it and, you know, construct these mythologies from manifest destiny that you can see in the history of landscape painting from the luminists and the Hudson River School. But how do we actually get people to see from the viewpoint of nature has been something that I've been really thought, thinking about a lot. Um, so I, I grew up along the U.S.-Mexico border in San Isidro, California, and to parents that were really involved in the migrant and agrarian movement for rights with Cesar Chavez and the American Indian movement, but the Chicano movement too. And I think that really gave me a deeper appreciation of thinking about the land as a relative and not something that you exploit, but something that you have a, a relationality with. And how can you see from the perspective of the land too? And, but, you know, I think also growing up, spending time with my grandma in her backyard along the border uh, and my great grandma and seeing like the way that they would grow plants and, and just talk with their plants and sometimes hang out more and give more love and attention to their plants and to us was actually really remarkable ways of knowing from both, both sides of my ancestry. Like how can we just think with the most sophisticated technology out there on this planet that has zero carbon waste than looking at plants and modeling ways of seeing that way. So for me, you know, I think observational painting and doing it all in one go very quickly, but also honestly, where I don't overly contrive my marks either and let like the gesture and movement and freedom of, of movement and space and interactivity is something that I really care about in painting, but also in sculpture as well too. I was going to save this for a little bit later, but seeing as we're talking about plants and how plants literally live <laughs> within, within your work, within your practice, you know, you went to art school and, and, and undergrad, both in New York City, which is not, you know, the most plant-oriented place on earth. Definitely not. <laughs> so as you became interested in bringing plants and plant life into this, was that something that you got some sort of permission for as you worked through your academic experience? Or was that just always rooted in your biography? You know, going to undergrad, I first went to the museum school in Boston, and then I transferred to Cooper Union. And when I got to Cooper Union, it was like one of the best experiences that I could have ever imagined. But also, I didn't have any Native American professors and or Chicano professors. So I feel like 
some of that knowledge structure wasn't really there for me. So I kind of had to build with what I was given. And the professors there were awesome. You know, like I, I had one professor, Bobby Bordeaux in painting, who really just pushed me outside of my illustrative painting weirdness that I kind of inherited by being not a photo geek, but a comic geek in San Diego. I used to go to like the San Diego Comic Con all the time. And he really got me to just see the power of abstraction. And I remember he would say things like, you know, you're actually an abstract painter. And to also push me to see how painting could be self-reflexive too, that it could indict itself too. And I think within my paintings of the landscape where I'm actually like kind of like thinking about the materiality and origin of, of the paint itself and indexing it, that was actually really crucial. And I think going back to your question of the environment and sculpture and stuff like that, Shakaya Booker was a ah, big yeah. influence on me. She was like my first sculpture professor because our studios were in Long Island City at the time at Cooper Union. So there's just junkyards all over the place. And I was getting scrap fiberglass bumpers and twerking and, you know, melding it and you know, I didn't really know her work like while I was doing that. And then, you know, the first few weeks after, because I was just so excited to be at Cooper, I then re researched her and it was like, she just gave me such good advice and was really great. But I think the, the key person to answer this question is my experience with my professor, Lillian Ball, who's like an environmental activist, amazing advocate for the environment. And, you know, I think she's really really intense on addressing the environment and communities front line and also thinking about working with indigenous communities in Southampton also um, the Shinnecock nation and I think to her you know it was very intimidating being her student at certain points because I felt like what could painting could do or you know I hadn't really done this before especially in New York City and I think she gave me license when she saw my paintings of just like, these are, these are good paintings. Like, you know, they, they are doing the, the work too, you know? And, you know, I think she also gave me that time to, to think about like how, how I could develop like thought experiments and plans of how to be expansive in space going forward to that were percolating in my subconscious. But, you know, it was really through painting that it really began and thinking through landscape painting and thinking of it as a thought experiment of how we could change the environment around us. And it's not like a fictional device, but it's actually like what happens if, you know, we completely took down all the buildings in New York or took down a lot of the buildings in the Southwest and just let nature take back these spaces too. And, you know, I, I really got to thank Lillian Ball for, for that. And yeah, I think, I think too, you know, in grad school, it was, it was interesting too, because I had these conversations between painters like Gregory Amanoff and Susanna Coffey and like Tomas Vu, but, and Kara Walker. But I think one of the visits that I had that was really influential on me also was this visit that I had with Mark Handelman. And he was talking about the history of painting because we were talking about the Hudson River School and he brought this up and then he talked about the luminous and, and like how light really was the propaganda for spreading these ideologies of, of manifest destiny. And I, I think that was a big gateway into me rethinking how I depict space and painting and, and opening up a lens onto a different viewpoint and perspective of landscape painting going forward. While you were at the Cooper Union, uh, an author named Alan Weissman wrote a book called The World Without Us. That sure sounds to me like exactly what you're describing. Um, the book, which was kind of a concept book, is kind of a concept book. 
imagines what would happen to the world, particularly the United States, if suddenly humans weren't here and how nature would take over. Was that a book you remember reading? Yeah, no, totally, actually. And I just picked it up like a few months ago, actually, to, to relook at it. And especially thinking about where we're going, scientists think that by the year 2030, if we don't change what we're doing, we're just on a crash course towards disaster. And, you know, I think we are all subconsciously feeling that, but, you know, the people in power are not really listening to us and letting people, you know, like Joe Manchin, just completely take us on the wrong path. And, you know, back then when that book was published, I was thinking about these things, but in a completely different context of, you know, being in New York City and like feeling sometimes very frustrated with with what was going on. And, you know, also growing up with hearing like the deterioration of the ozone layer, you know, and, and yeah. how that was evaporated, like, you know, how, how our very future was getting evaporated minute by minute and day by day. So how and, and I, how the world at the time came together to address that in a way we have together around climate change. Totally, totally. And I feel like as artists, like we are the ones that, and this will probably be a, a continuing theme throughout our conversation, like how, how can artists jump the conversation and put an electric current into these ideas to push institutions forward? And, you know, I think with painting, like that was definitely like, how could I make that mark that indexes that trauma, but not reinscribe that trauma back onto the viewer, but create a portal or a gateway towards a better future and reality. And I didn't have words for it in the time, but I think, you know, I was really blessed to have really awesome painting professors at Cooper Union, like Bordeaux, that was just like this, you know, giving me those painting tools and, and ways of thinking that were really beneficial for me to think, what happens if all these buildings were gone? What ecologies would thrive, you know, and, you know, right now I'm on Lenape land, you know, it's talking to you, Tyler, you know, thinking about the generations of indigenous technology that just went into taking care of this land that, that created streets like Broadway that people are using even right now that, you know, how, how it's not so oppressive and, and built up like the industrial revolution, but, but thinking more like along with nature not oppressing it. And I, I think that book was actually really influential. In That's wild. I, as you were, as you were describing a moment ago, I, you know, that book is in one of these books. I, I have more bookcases that makes human sense, but I was looking for the, I knew the title. I was pretty sure it was Alan Weissman, but I wasn't sure. So I was looking over my shoulder here trying to find it. We will include in on, on the show page of Anne a link to Weissman's The World Without Us, 2007 book. It's really, really an interesting book. So hopefully, hopefully listeners get a chance to check it out. So speaking of nature taking over and plants being a part of your work, there's a sculpture now at the Momentary in Bentonville called Host, and it's a bronze sculpture with native plants. How did you come to making plants part of the sculpture? What are the native plants? And then how does it work, physically work to have plants in a sculpture? I, I'd never done this before. Like I, I went to like a public art high school in Denver, Colorado, Denver School of the Arts. And like they'd have us do like little bronzes with like lost wax and stuff like that. And um, I got to credit my professor, Daryl Tomlinson. I just, you know, from a really young age, I just wanted to learn how to paint. But like every half semester, he'd make me do sculpture. So from a young age, I was like experimenting with that. And, you know, over time, I had always really 
loved how just watching and modeling art after nature. And my partner, Heidi Howard, is like this amazing grower and plant whisperer. And uh, when we, when I was doing the Rikes Academy residency in Amsterdam, we were like making a lot of pottery alongside one another. And Heidi was kind of like working with some pots and like putting plants inside of them. And I was like, that's so cool. Like what, what, what if I was to combine that with like native plants alongside like figurines from my ancestry and take back like this land that, you know, was at one point, I mean, it was, it was Cherokee land at one point. So that's not my uh, indigenous ancestry, but how could, how could it also be a land acknowledgement on a very industrial space? That's a former chemical plant. And so I, I, I found this figurine that was at the Metropolitan Museum of Art host. That's from uh, the Squintle era of uh, Mayan figurines. And, you know, I'm, I'm constantly interested in like, how can you get these objects, these very sacred objects and repatriate them out as a form of, of, of like use now to help us in the age of like global warming. And I think part of what I wanted to do also is like, how can it extend out towards other institutions? I, I feel like this is really important work that needs to get done right now. And I really enjoyed the process of working with Caitlin Ma Garcia Maestas, the, the curator there, but then also she enlisted the help of the gardeners there, Clay Baker. And they're just like, yeah, we're here to help whatever you want to do, like, let's do it. So getting to experiment with like this live oxidation of the bronze where I didn't put a patina on it. I wanted it to be forever until the end of time till our human and planetary time till we, you know, evaporate into stardust this sculpture will oxidize and change with nature and i i've been you know actively talking to the gardeners who who've, instead of instituting like a watering system with hoses and stuff like that and that would just be more costly and more of a footprint doing hand watering systems and you know them that little gesture is like a way of them actively changing the patina and collaborating with me so that was that was really cool but you know, I think the, the the big part of it is are like, what are the native plants in there? And I think- Yeah, can I interrupt for a, a quick second? You know, we'll have images on, on the website, but just to make a couple things extra clear, there is dirt <laughs> within the sculpture and the plants <laughs> are growing in. So they are living plants. Secondly, before we talk more about native plants, could you define native plants for us? What you think of when you, you know, are you, are you talking about plants that have specific uses and heritage heritages within specific indigenous communities where are you talking about plants that are air quotes native to a region or dot 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 yeah i mean i think the way that you know i i go to the new york botanical gardens or just you know what typically gardeners say is that it is from that specific site specific area and that's an idea that I think is really prescient in the work is that like, you know, I'm looking a lot specifically at like beauty berries, Solomon seals, echinacea, Arkansas beard tongues, early buttercups, ferns, purple passion flowers, prairie blazing stars, blue veranes and black eyed Susans. And like, you know, these things have been growing for so long. And I think we as a race of humans on this planet need to just see that, you know, we don't need better technology. You know, we need to actually just 
like look at what's already there and to honor the generations of indigenous people that have been taken care of, like specifically this part of Arkansas, you know, Cherokee people, and to, and to really think deeply about how do we pay respect to those people and honor their land rights, ancestral, but then also like change the way that we're growing and exploiting, you know, and how, how do we think about migrant labor around harvesting our very ways of life with fruits and vegetables in this country too, that is very exploited as well too. But, you know, I, my goal for this is to take this to other places and to think about like the expansive nature of this. And, you know, one of the cool things that of seeing this, I was really scared that what was going to happen. So it's going to become like a wasp's nest and it was going to become a huge <laughs> failure. People were going to get stung and whatever, but then, you know, nature stepped in and all of like these caterpillars, monarch pollinators started munching on all the goodies of echinacea and uh, passion flowers and blazing star prairies and black eyed Susans. And then formed like a cocoon inside of the sculpture, which is, and then wow. attached. And it's just amazing that I kind of want to like cast those parts of the, those remainders or of like a cocoon or like watching the cycles of life and death persist. And I don't know, it's just really, I just, I think it was like a sign that I just need to keep doing this type of stuff. Conservators are going to love you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so do these same ideas about plants, these same engagements with plants and local and regional and indigenous histories live within your paintings? And if so, could you maybe give us a good, a, a good example from which into which we can jump? There's one painting in the show called Besar la Tierra. A lot of the way that I kind of work is by going directly to spaces from my ancestry in the Southwest and letting those moments have conversations with other regional cultures of indigenous ancestry as well too. Like how, how, how did these things talk to one another? What shared ideas relate towards one another? And this painting I, I made inside of these uh, ancestral caves in Northern New Mexico. And I, part of what's nice is how it refers back to our own vision, you know, as being like an aperture, but then also the materiality of looking at earth from inside of earth as well too. So how to think through the perspective of plants, even though it's going to be flawed in an anthropomorphization of that space, but watching like the different cycles of, of seasons and seeing how ancient technology that was very disrespected after 1492 has less of a footprint because it, it had a way of working where it, instead of, and I've said this before, instead of like kind of trampling it, it just worked with it, going with the grain and creating celestial star calendars through these different cave paintings to chart different equinox systems and how vividly complex and world-making indigenous societies were in Northern New Mexico is kind of like my way to advocate for, you know, our land rights as somebody that is, you know, of mixed heritage. And I, I, I think painting there and attuning myself to this type of more abstract language, but then that does have a conversation with observational painting is something that I really care about a lot. And to just change our vision from a colonial possessive mindset to one of more 
egalitarian reciprocity, you know, with our surroundings. It's been a learning curve, like painting in acrylic on site because it's the desert and it dries faster. So I have to work 10 times faster and rolling up the canvases after I, after they dry or bringing them out into certain places. And it's been a learning curve also, but I also try not to leave anything behind either because I don't want to change these sites either. But I think it's also a gift <laughs> that my, my father, who is like a historian, like he'd bring us to all these places and, you know, connect us with, you know, our history. But I really also have to thank my, my parents for bringing us to these places and honoring that perspective. I think there are specific plants represented in this painting. Yeah, I, so what was really cool was watching like these, almost like I think that they're like black-eyed Susans that were just growing out of like the side of a mountain cliff. When, you, when I went into the cave, I was just like painting there. And then all of a sudden I kind of noticed like a, a butterfly like, or it was probably like a monarch or something like that, just chilling in the side of like, like a hundred foot drop, pollinating this plant right through the aperture of these caves. And I think what was really remarkable was just seeing the interweaving and intercomplex life building systems that humans really need to wake up and shift towards, you know, we could make better batteries or better carbon capturing systems. But the best carbon capture technology is actually the earth and thinking about how it just absorbs toxins and takes it back out into oxygen. It's just something that we really need to wake up towards and just build less and, and just let nature, <laughs> for lack of a better description, breathe, you know. Which is represented in the painting because in the, you know, vaguely naturalistic landscape, that is at the air quotes back of the painting, you know, we see a blue ridge of mountains and the reason forested mountains, for example, look blue in the distance is because I believe trees are belching oxygen into the air. We, we are seeing chemical processes happen and we see them as blue. I think that's right. Gosh, I hope that's right. If that's wrong, I'll say something about it in the intro. <laughs> so I'm glad you brought up this painting, Bessar La Tierra, which is from 2021. You, uh, in a number of paintings, including this one, often superimpose or suggest the superimposition of forms, you know, like designs, shapes, and so on, over a landscape. And then the landscape, such as forested mountains in this case, is, is often beyond, behind those shapes and forms pictorially. So from where are those shapes and forms taken, and why are they important to you? I think about when I'm out in the field, like, tuning and just watching and painting as as quickly as I can I'm also trying to think of the impact of colonization there's this lecture that Brad Kalheimer was giving at the Metropolitan Museum when he was talking about like the car crash of colonization and you know for me it was like kind of like a bell rung of like how can I think about the interrelation of of violence but also cosmic interactivity and thinking about how could I hold multiple dimensions and temporalities in one painting? I mean, people have been trying to do this forever, you know, within cubism, within all of like ideas of hyperspace and another person touchstone has been Jack Whitten, amazing painter and sculptor who, you know, how can you not think in binaries, but think and hold multiple dimensions 
and multiple communities in your mind at once when making a painting and also being heavily inspired by mathematics is something that I've been really trying to think through with, with painting. So there's that, you know, like how, how can, how can I model something larger than me through my vantage point? And, you know, I'm, I'm not going to kind of go into specifics about, you know, certain places because I don't want people to kind of overpopulate and go there and trample these places either because I think that they're really important. But I, I do think we, we need to take into account a genuine respect for like the cave paintings in this country. I just recently went to New Mexico and I went to see some cave paintings and they were sprayed on by probably some high school students or something like that. And it was really sad, but I think part of what I want to do with the work is to like hold on to like ways of seeing through ancient cave paintings of Northern New Mexico as like a gateway into another way of seeing and not to just look in the past. And this is sort of an answer to your question. Why, why am I doing these layers, but to also look forward into the future at the same time, how can I look at some of like these icons that are modeling the cosmos and thinking non-linearly with time, but thinking very vastly. Meanwhile, in Europe, when they were modeling these ancient star calendars to be able to register the different equinoxes, you know, Europe was vastly far behind in terms of modeling the stars. So I think we really need to honor the, the knowledge that we tend to take for granted in this country that existed before 1492 and to really just take a moment and just really respect where we're at right now instead of trying to erase ideas of critical race theory in this country and, and to really teach an honest uh, perspective of, of history in this country. I thought you might mention Cubism because a few years ago you made some paintings such as The Root from 2019 that lore and play with cube in ways that kind of serve as a precursor to the way that you lay imagery on top of other imagery such as landscape in a way that creates kind of pictorial collision so it sounds or it looks i should say like something that you had been planning working through advancing a while and i'm still experimenting more with different chemicals, like local, local materials that are better for the environment, like natural dyes and letting those, you know, uh, my mom told me this quick story about when my mom, when my great grandma Bondita was raising cactus in our backyard, she was growing like cactus and there was like cochineal, like little beetles that were growing on these cactuses and stuff like that. And she would just harvest them and, you know, they turn blood red and, and thinking about going back to this idea of self-reflexivity and indexing the very thing that you're painting of like, I'm, I'm interested in, in more sustainable ways of creating color, like cochineal dyeing that ties me back to the land, but also ties me back into my ancestry. So, you know, going forward, that's something that I want to explore, you know, a really interesting process in and of itself. There are a couple of forms or shapes that recur or have been recurring in your work a bit lately that I wanted to ask about. One is kind of an outline form that you've used in paintings and in sculpture too, for that matter. And it's kind of, kind of recalls the famous outline shape in Ana Mendiada's work, kind of a human outline of a human figure, you know, head, shoulders, and then kind of tapering down to the feet. What is that form 
for you and how did you come to find potentiality within it? I tend to think an image before words come in to my process. And that form kind of came out of just being in lockdown and COVID and wanting to just hold on to that space between our shared community and then the outside world, but to also create a gateway towards something hopeful or just an opening for something else. And I think being a a kid that grew up along the border and, and passing between different spaces and, you know, sometimes also thinking about the way that my people would, you know, use the Southwest as a thoroughfare and movement through which as like a pilgrimage site before the border was even created has been something that I've been trying to image in a way that that thing has been kind of that way, but then also think about charting space and to also create, you know, in in a very practical way, an armature that, you know, stands up against gravity, but then also implicates the viewer. I think within this project that I've been doing at Crystal Bridges, where I want to have this go expansively outwards, fearlessly and like courageously allowing plants to just thrive and to, and to imagine ecosystems again that were taken away from us, how you have to start the building block is in order to build empathy with the viewer is the human form. You know, people aren't going to go along the ride if you only give them vinegar, you got to give them some type of honey or some, some way to like lure them in sort of, you know? So it's like, you know, and, and Amendieta is definitely a huge influence as like a feminist, but also a Latina, you know, like I, I think of her work a lot and site specificity is something too that I think about with her work that I really respect. So yeah, it's really interesting of, of finding ways of knowing and knowledge systems that weren't instantaneously commodifiable to Western notions of ecologies, of botany, or, or even landscape architecture, but that have like this embedded ways of knowing and, and that I just, I, I hope comes across in the work. Oh, I think it does. So we've talked a good bit about ways in which you've built on the American landscape tradition, particularly the American landscape painting tradition. And we've talked about the things you've added to it and the ways in which you've complicated it. And because I'm a giant history nerd, what parts of it have you thought to yourself, oh, I want to hold on to that part of the American landscape tradition? What, 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 yeah. what parts of it have you found useful to build on and from? I think... For me, the person that I've been really inspired by, and this isn't necessarily somebody that you would think of as like a landscape painter from like the observational point of view, but it would be somebody like Joan Mitchell is is somebody that I've just been really interested in of somebody that didn't come up, like try and grab the landscape in a normative way, but culled it from emotional somatic ways of knowing and feeling that I, I deeply, deeply get inspired by. I think her approach of working very gesturally and openly with her body, but then also in using like structuralism and color in a way that feels very ancient. People would kind of say, like, I, there's like this interview with Bryce Martin about her work that she's sort of like, you know, the ancient cave painters, you know, and I, 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 she's been somebody that I've been thinking about a lot lately. How can you let it just be paint, but then 
And it could also index something much greater than itself. Has been somebody that I, I was thinking a lot. And, you know, she was looking, you know, you could say she was tied to Monet also, you know, in certain ways of looking and making because of her time in Fatai and in France and stuff like that. You know, in, in one respect, there are a whole gang of, of painters out there. I, I think a big influence on me was actually somebody like Susanna Coffey that we would go out night painting together and she has her whole trajectory of people that inspired her from, you know, different painters. But I, I, I genuinely think that for me right now where I'm at, it's like, yeah, there's totally like a lot of nouveau realist, American nouveau realist that I'm also inspired by, but how can I deconstruct that while also kind of seeing something letting the work get more and more abstract and stranger. Cause I think the more you approach reality that this and trying to explain it, the more abstract and strange it can get. I think for me, one of the other things you've held on to is the truthfulness of color. Your paintings of the Southwest are of the colors. I remember being there, you know, they're, 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 they're these seemingly impossible colors that really are there in like Northern New Mexico or Eastern New Mexico. Yeah, uh- yeah, and you know, me and my partner just went to France in uh, Monet's garden to kind of understand the history of how other artists created gardens and let it be expansive and let it grow out, you know. And that's something that I'm interested in. But then also, how to find certain places that have a charge of light. And I think that's why Joan Mitchell went to Vitaille and went to where Monet was because it was a special kind of light that he was looking for. And, you know, you could turn that into something bad as like a propaganda, like the luminists or or certain painters, or you could use it for something beneficial and egalitarian and shared like, you know, garden space. And, you know, I, when we go to Northern New Mexico in a couple of days, I'm, I'm really interested in seeing how people react to the light in my work from like looking, but then also how people garden in the Southwest, how do cultures, Apache maintain ways of relationships with corn and growing things in the craziest of climates that you could, you know, from a Western point of view, imagine. So for me, I'm, I'm really interested in light and how you can turn light into something spectacular, you know, or, or just something that beautiful, you know? So we've talked about nature and the natural and plants, all, all of which is very present in the work. And there's one little painterly move that you've, you've used in the last couple of years that kind of strikes me as being different from all that. Use bandanas, black and I think white bandanas, a painting for, such as Pow Wow from 2020, a white bandana seems to hover above or unveil a mountain, Kitara from 2021, I think that year is right, 2021 triangular black bandana seems to hover float between the viewer and and a figure playing a guitar it just seems like such a different move within your repertoire and so where does it come from and and what do you what what are you what are you hoping to do with it yeah i i think you know being a product of san Isidro, but then also denver colorado we were raised in a predominantly Chicano part of town where on like in Denver, there's just a lot of low riders and a lot of graffiti, but also just Vato culture too. And I, I think growing up with my dad, who was very, very proud of all of his ancestry is like, how, how do you kind of show it? 
And I think that cultural signifier of the bandana is something that I've kind of like kind of questioned and utilized, but then also tried to play with and deconstruct because, you know, I think in my community also there's a big machismo issue too. And how can you indict an object, but also like kind of play with it and mess with it so it doesn't have like this very strong, clear delineation like, yeah, it's in the paintings in certain spaces, but who's wearing it and how, how, how you can turn a signifier in on itself and play with that ways of working with it is I think really important. So then again, I think I don't want to reinscribe certain ideas of violence, but how can you like kind of get it to be self-reflexive and open in a way for viewership to kind of come in and yeah, I don't know. It's just also kind of like a, a, a beautiful motif, but in a way, so. Yeah, it works pictorially too. <laughs> a few minutes ago, you mentioned how kind of the indexical could be useful. So I wanted to wrap up by asking you about an element of the installation at the momentary that is a, a combination seed bank with native plant seedings and card catalog, like the old fashioned library card catalog object thing. I don't know, whatever you call it, card catalog. <laughs> How does it function and how is it kind of a part of, um, I, I think there's there, there, there's this thing that runs through a lot of your work of, of kind of being holistic and future addressing, even as you update hundreds of year old forms. And then how do you, how do you hope that, that that seed bank functions in that way as, as, as a holistic future offering thing? Thanks. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like we're just at a, a big tipping point or maybe we passed the tipping point in global warming, the climate change. And I actually am hopeful. I, I think being raised by both union organizers and bodyguards for the, the migrant farm worker movement and the Black Panther movement, it's like we, we, got, we got nothing but hope that we, that we ha- have had to hold on to to survive, you know, genocide. And I think there's a lot of skepticism right now with like the midterm elections and just pessimism and it's like no dude we gotta we gotta just stay hopeful about what's what what's going on you know and like if my people were able to survive genocide then we can like go on and like survive this crazy wave of white supremacy that's just trying to evaporate abortion rights and migrant rights and separating kids from their parents along the border and like I think that gesture of just trying to bring in these these seeds and stuff like that is that like push towards like, how can we think differently about the way that we get our food? How do we get our medicine? How, how can we grow things on our own, but also push those in power to acknowledge that equanimity that needs to happen with, with the environment. And I, I think I also have to kind of cite people like Felix Gonzalez Torres, who, you know, made these objects in a giveaway thing, but those are like inanimate objects. They weren't alive. You know, they were candies for a very prescient point that he was making or posters and stuff like that. And I think for me, what I, the gesture that I wanted to do was to be like, people have come such a far way to this, to this place. Or also it's like, you have different demographics going to a museum and how can you make them feel at home and make them feel like their knowledge is respected as well too. And to give them something as a, as a gesture of reciprocity for honoring them for even coming. Cause I think it's important that we honor the audiences that come too to, to see museums. And for me, it was like, how can, how can we extend this conversation 
in a way like Johnny Appleseeding <laughs> this conversation out towards other people and to, to bring it out. So it's not just this one off, but it could keep growing. And we're going to be doing some workshops this week, actually there in Bentonville to, to think about urban gardening and stuff like that. So for me, it's like, it was a gesture of expansivity and just trying to just carry hope forward. And yeah, I hope I get to do this again someday, someday soon. So, so just to be clear, because I don't think I made it clear enough in my question, this is a functional card catalog. People can take stuff from it. <laughs> Correct. Yeah, I should explain that too. Viewers can go into the gallery and choose from an assortment of native plant seeds. And I kind of mentioned them earlier, but Black Eyed Susans, Blue Varanes, Prairie Blazing Stars, Echinacea, and, you know, take them home and grow them on their own. And I, I thought that was just something that I've always really wanted to do. And I don't know, I think it's just a nice way of just building your own relationship with plants that, you know, I think it's just, even if they die or if they live, it's like you learn more how to care for something outside of yourself and to build a relationship with the land in your backyard. So, and maybe even the stories of, of care, of stewardship that happened before colonization as well too. So, yeah. Esteban Cabeza de Baca, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Women Painting Women, on view May 15th through September 25th at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth. Women Painting Women features 46 female artists who choose women as subject matter in their works. This presentation, international in scope, includes evocative portraits that span the late 1960s to the present. All place women, their bodies, gestures, and individuality at the forefront, conceiving new ways to activate and elaborate on the portrayal of women. The artists highlighted in the exhibition use painting and women as subject matter and range from early trailblazers like Alice Neal and Emma Amos to emerging artists such as Jordan Castile and Apollonia Sokol. Women Painting Women at the Modern through September 25th. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum in St. Louis that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. This spring, the Pulitzer presents Assembly Required, an exhibition featuring nine artists whose work invites your active participation. Engage with work by Francis Elise, Rashid Areen, Saya Armajani, Tanya Bruguera and Instar, Ligia Clark, Elio Oidesica, Yoko Ono, Ligia Pape, and Franz Erhard Walter. Created between the 1950s and the present, the artworks respond to distinct social and political moments, from unrest in the United States during the Vietnam War to Peru's military dictatorship. The artists offer unique perspectives on social change, addressing the need for optimism and hope in the face of global tensions. The exhibition poses questions about how art allows us to imagine new ways of being in the world. Assembly Required opens March 4th and is on view through July 31st, 2022. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. Next up, my 2020 conversation with photographer Jess T. Dugan. Their work is included within Designing Motherhood, Things That Make and Break Our Births, which is at the Mass Art Art Museum through December 18th. According to the museum, the exhibition was organized by a curatorial team that includes design historians, birth advocates, and medical and midwifery history experts. The museum's press release names none of them. This conversation previously aired on episode number 468 when photographs from Dugan's 
To survive on this shore, photographs and interviews with transgender and gender nonconforming older adults project were at the Minneapolis Institute of Arts. Dugan produced To Survive on This Shore with their partner, Vanessa Fabre, a social worker and professor at Washington University in St. Louis. The book related to the project was published by Kara Verlog in 2018. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. Jess Dugan, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. Thanks so much for having me. What started you thinking to yourself, hmm, older transgender people are substantially absented from many forms of culture? That's an interesting question. So to answer it, I'm going to take a little bit of a step back. My work as a photographer has always focused on issues of identity. And in particular, I have focused on ideas around gender and sexuality. My earliest work was made within LGBTQ communities that I was a part of in Boston when I was a late teenager and and in my early 20s. And so I had a longer history of working within LGBTQ communities and specifically within transgender and gender expansive communities. So that was part of my practice as a photographer. It's also part of my identity. I identify as queer and non-binary. And that all was part of my work as a whole. So then in 2012, I met my partner, Vanessa Fabre, who is a social worker whose work focuses on LGBT aging. And we realized fairly quickly that although we were in different fields, we had overlapping interests and that we could combine our skill sets to create a project that would fill a gap that we perceived. A couple of things happened. You know, we both knew from our personal work and previous work within trans communities that there were a lot of older transgender and gender expansive people. We knew that there were issues around access to medical care, access to nursing homes. We knew that people were thinking about growing older while being openly transgender. And that in some ways is a a relatively new occurrence here in the United States, at least on the scale that it is. So we knew those things. We also knew that a lot of older trans folks had been really significant to activism and in many cases paved the way for the world we live in now. And then we also knew that younger trans people didn't have a lot of images of older trans people. There weren't a lot of role models out there. And a lot of the images that did exist or or have existed in the past were either negative or focused on violence of some kind or were overly fetishized. So we knew all of these things and we decided to begin the project that became To Survive on the Shore, where we would photograph and interview people who were over the age of 50 and self-identified as transgender or gender expansive and work towards an exhibition and a book. So there wasn't a period of research or study where you were looking at film or art that got you more than usually aware of, of an absenting of a group of people? Not In particular, I think our awareness came more from our involvement within LGBTQ communities and from our own personal knowledge and previous research and connections we had. You know, I will say for me, I have certainly been very aware of representations of queerness in the art world and in culture at large for a long time, because that's important to me personally, and and it overlaps with my work, of course, and and why I make photographs. So 
I certainly had a, a more broad awareness of what those representations looked like, but I think by the time we came across the idea for this project, we were really ready to to just start making it. That's interesting to me personally and professionally because I often hear from art historians that biography is you know, either not valid or not an important form for art historians, but but there's an example of its importance. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I don't think I knew of that that notion. But yeah, I mean, for me as a photographer more broadly, my work really comes from a, a very personal place and it's it's informed by my own identity. So, you know, while I have different projects, some of which are more personal and, and some of which are more documentary leaning, it all is connected in some way to my identity and who I am. And I think with To Survive on This Shore, I imagine it would have been possible to make the work had I not been a part of the community in a, in a more extended sense. But I also think the fact that I was coming at it from inside the community made a, a really significant difference in, you know, people trusting my motivations, trusting me as an artist, trusting how I would pr present the work. So for me, I can't separate my, my identity or my biography from my photographic work. They're very intertwined. Speaking of that, portraiture, of course, is most often a collaboration between maker and sitter. And when you're working on a project like this over many years, what, five or six years? Mm -hmm, five years. Five years. And your subject or subjects know that they're going to be presented and seen within a larger whole. Does that impact the, the collaboration, the process of making pictures? So for To Survive on the Shore, as you mentioned, each participant knew what the project would entail. They knew that there would be a portrait and that there would be an interview. And they also knew that it was going to be presented publicly as a collection of images and interviews with people who identify as transgender. So there was an element of awareness on the front end that, that certainly required people to, to be willing to be out, to be willing to be public. And so that affected who... I photographed and who answered the call to participate for sure. But beyond that, in some ways, the portrait sessions were not necessarily different than my other work, which, you know, I, I, I always go to people's homes or personal spaces. I feel that that's very important. I work very slowly with my camera on a tripod. I use all natural light. I have slow shutter speeds. I do a decent amount of directing of the subject, and that's really in pursuit of directing them into a version of themselves that feels authentic, but is also visually strong. So there's a lot of back and forth. So the, the photo shoots themselves, I wouldn't say were, they weren't necessarily very different from how I would, would work in, in any project. I think one thing that was different is that I knew I was trying to make work that represented a very large and very diverse community as accurately as possible. So there was certainly more of a drive to document in a way. A lot of my other portrait work, although it has elements of identity, leans much more subjective. So with To Survive on the Shore, I was thinking a lot about how I was portraying each person, where they were photographed, what that environment said about who they were, how that portrait overlapped with their story. So there were multiple elements at play beyond simply trying to make a beautiful or a visually compelling photograph. Although I will say that also was a significant goal. I, I, I feel really strongly that it's important to create an image or a portrait that is visually strong and resonant to draw the viewer in. 
to connect with it on this visceral level and then to think about all of the additional layers of identity or politics or things like that. So I'm even with this work, of course, I was highly committed to making portraits that were dignified and beautiful, but I was also thinking a lot about how to tell each person's story in a way that was authentic to them and also compelling to a broader audience. One more question on making before we get into the pictures themselves. In your conversation with the aforementioned Vanessa Fabre and with curator Karen Irvine in the back of the book of this work that Kara Verlag published in 2018 and which is still available, of course, link on manpodcast.com, you mentioned that one of your near rules, as it were, was using natural light. Was that a rule that was specific or specifically important to this project? And if so, why? I am drawn to natural light as a photographer. I love several things about it. One, I love how it looks. I love how it falls on a person. I also love that it forces me to react to the specifics of a space rather than walking in and and having complete control over the environment. I found that that often leads me to make even more dynamic images than I might if I went in with this preconceived idea of how I was going to light it and how I was going to pose someone. So I like that element of having to respond. So that's true through all of my work. But with To Survive on the Shore in particular, I was thinking a lot about representation and particularly representation of a community of people that is often marginalized. And in many cases, the subjects had identities that differed significantly from mine, which has not always been the case for me as much in my other work. So, you know, we were making work across lines of race and class and age and life experience. So I was very conscious of all of those things. And I felt that making a choice to commit to natural light just allowed me to make portraits that felt a bit more dignified. I was very cautious not to go into someone's home and make pictures that felt othering or felt overly voyeuristic. And I know as I'm saying this, that's not what happens for everyone using studio lighting. But I think within the history of photography, there is a bit of of a precedent for that kind of going into these spaces and showing difference in this way that ends up being a bit more voyeuristic than I think it really should be or that I wanted it for this work. So I made the very conscious decision to use only natural light. And in some cases... I would go to someone's home and it would have particularly bad natural light. And we would often choose to make the portrait outside in a space that still felt personal to them, you know, either in front of their home or in a park that they loved or or, or something like that. Well, let's talk about the pictures themselves. The first picture in the book is titled Sky 64, 64 being an age, Palm Springs, is Sky the same Sky as in Catherine Opie's Mike and Sky from 1992? And if so, was that important or even foundational to the project? Yes. So Sky is the same Sky. 25 or 30 years on, of course. Correct. And taking a step back, Catherine Opie was a significant influence to me as a younger person and younger photographer, which I'm sure is is not a surprise to anyone, anywhere. (laughs) It's a very obvious connection. But, you know, I discovered her work when I was 16. And, you know, it was really validating to me as a young queer person, but also, of course, influenced me as a photographer and an artist. And so 
when I was making this project, Sky actually reached out to me. Sky sent me an email and expressed interest in being part of the project. And he was so sweet. He he wrote, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the Catherine Obie photograph, but this is who I am. And, you know, it was like all I could do not to write back and say, oh, my God, I know exactly what page it's on. Of course, I know that picture. You know, it's like it was it was a, a picture that I had really come of age knowing and looking at. And so I was really excited to photograph him for that reason. I mean, also, he is incredibly interesting as a person. And I was really drawn to him visually. And I, and I thought what he had to offer to the project was really important. But yes, I knew going into it that that Sky and Sky and Mike were the same people from from Catherine Obie's work. And but yeah, it's definitely important. And, you know, in terms of the project and the book, we were really committed to making sure we allowed the portraits and narratives to be complicated. We we wanted to include both struggle and joy. We didn't want to sugarcoat, but we also didn't want to focus only on discrimination or violence. So that was a guiding principle for sure. But beyond that, we also wanted to push back on some assumptions around sexuality or dating life. And so several of the people that we included talked about relationships or sexuality or people that they were dating or things that happened to them later in life. And Sky, in particular spoke about having been part of the queer women scene in the Bay area, but also specifically of the leather community. And he really felt strongly that he wanted to have that represented in the portrait and the quote. And that's part of why we chose his leather shirt for the portrait. And that for me was also an important reason to start the book with that. I, I, and he also speaks about multiple aspects of, of his identity, one being what I just mentioned, being you know part of the leather community and, and various queer communities over the years, another being in a polyamorous relationship with his partner, long-term partner, and another being a father. He's raising a, a son who was actually his his daughter's son who passed away. So he spoke about all of these identities. And I really wanted to start the book with a narrative that would immediately let people know that this, this book and this project wasn't catering to stereotypes that, that we have about both older adults, which are, are rampant, and also about people who are transgender or, or gender expansive. So beginning the book with him was was a very intentional choice. And then, of course, there's a, a second portrait later in the book of him with his partner, Mike. And, and that portrait is paired with an interview with Mike. So both of their stories are represented. Speaking of, of that, I'm curious about two kind of interconnected elements here. One, were you conscious of contributing to a trans art history? And secondly, was it important to you to add trans presence to tropes isn't the right word and genres isn't the right word, but to, to visual ideas within art history. And then maybe after I shut up and let you answer, I'll raise a couple of specific pictures in which I wonder if you're doing that. To answer the first part of that question, yes, I was absolutely aware of wanting to contribute portraits and representations to a broader art historical canon you know, my work as a whole centers around identity, and I, I believe very deeply in the importance of representation. And because of that, partially because of that, I identified museums as an ideal home for my work early on. So 
the primary receptacle for my photographs is, is museums and institutional collections. And because of that, I absolutely think it's important to add representations of, of transgender people and more broadly of queer people to these collections where they will be exhibited and hopefully included in dialogue with other artists where they will be included in scholarship. So absolutely, I'm very much thinking about how my work could add to an art historical canon. In terms of the tropes, I'm a very formal photographer and I am very influenced by art history. And in particular, I'm influenced by portrait painting. As a younger person, I worked for many years at the Harvard Art Museum and my job was photographing the collection. And so my desk was actually in art storage and I spent eight hours a day photographing their print collection. And beyond that, I spent a lot of time in the museum. And so I just seeped this aesthetic seeped into my brain in a way that, to be totally honest, I didn't even fully realize it at the time. And and so, you know, my, my photographs are very influenced by a larger art historical language and the language of painting and portrait painting. I, I think a lot about gesture and light. In particular, I pay a lot of attention to hands. You know, I love walking through museums and just looking at the hands and paintings and, and thinking about what that gesture implies for the photograph. So the language of art history and the language of other media is certainly present in my work. You know, I often say I'm a capital P photographer, like I very much identify as someone who makes photographs, but my broader language is, is influenced by things outside of photography. So there are a couple, I, I mean, I think I could probably raise more than a couple, but but for the sake of our purposes here, there are a couple of pictures that made me wonder how consciously you were addressing art history, whether photographic or, or painting. John, Mount Ida, Arkansas, in which John is not literally emerging from the water, but he's standing lakeside. And, you know, to an art nerd, when someone is, is standing lakeside, kind of one leg a little bit ahead of the other, we inevitably think of two things, a Venus but also of Cezanne. And I wonder if any of those constructions were informing you. You know, I, I never consciously respond to a specific piece, as in, you know, Kahindi Wiley, for example. But the language is always there in my mind. And I very much own that and, and talk about that. So I'm sure on some level that was there for me subconsciously. You know, I've always been interested in that particular stance because I find that it speaks about gender in an interesting way and it speaks about vulnerability in an interesting way. And, you know, particularly putting a, a masculine or male person in that pose, I think complicates the conversation. So that's part of what I was thinking about. In terms of the landscape specifically, John spoke about being a very active hiker and he had actually had some significant struggles that he overcame health-wise and mental health-wise. And part of how he overcame those was by taking up hiking and spending a lot of time in the landscape where he lived. He lived in rural Arkansas, which is not an easy place to be trans. And so that's the reason that I placed him in that location, because it was important to him. But yes, certainly all of these art historical references are, are there in my mind. And I'm, again, I'm not thinking of them consciously. It's not like I take an image of a painting and, and kind of try to recreate it, but but it's definitely present in my subconscious. And, and I am really interested. I mean, consciously, part of what I'm interested in in my work 
is fusing a very classical style of portraiture and representation with a very contemporary subject matter. And that's something that came naturally to me early on, but I've also come to understand that it acts as this entrance point in a way that that another style might not might not do so well. And so that is something I do consciously employ. But but yes, I, I do not I do not intentionally reference a specific work, but the language is present for sure. Finally, one of the things that's present in quite literally every portrait in the series is that the sitter looks right at us, is looking right into the lens of your camera. I guess less as an art historical question than just I'm kind of curious. Was that something you had to tell people, your sitters, to do, or did it just kind of work out that way? Yeah, that's definitely something that's very intentional on my part. It's something that I've always been drawn to organically from the very beginning of my work, but consciously I use direct eye contact for a couple of reasons. One is to really allow the subject to take some ownership of their portrait and present themselves to the audience, you know, to me, and then of course, by extension to the audience, I feel that there's a lot of power in that gaze. And it, it, it makes it very clear that they know they're being photographed. It, it speaks to the consent of our engagement. It speaks about their willingness to show themselves. And I think that's really important. And for me, the second reason is that I find that it really activates the viewer and it requires someone to really engage with a person that they might be uncomfortable with, or they might not know a lot about, or they might have, you know, assumptions or stereotypes about. And I refuse to let them gaze passively upon the other. I ask them to engage in a a very human way and in hopefully a meaningful way. Part of what I'm trying to do in my work is not just to share specific stories, but to actually activate the viewer to think about their own identities and their own reaction to the work and their own thoughts and assumptions about the people that they're looking at. And I find by using direct eye contact, it really facilitates that kind of interaction. Jess T. Dugan, thank you. Thank you so much, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.